You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that you have this memorized, (laughs) because it really sets the theme for our study this morning. Ephesians 5, verse 25, and I know our wives know this verse well too. Paul's exhortation inspired by the Holy Spirit to you and I, men who are husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives, and then he gives us the means or the way in which we are to love our wives. He says, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we are such a blessed people. Uh, Our Christmas celebration reminds us of the great extent of your love. All that you did to provide a way for us to be redeemed from sin and from Satan and from all the depravity of our previous life to wash us and cleanse us in your blood and to write our names in the book of life and to secure a place for us in eternity with you forever. Lord, Christmas is such a great reminder of all of that and what you did to make that happen. Lord, this morning we gather together as a thankful people. We have open hearts and open minds and so we ask that you would teach us this morning that, Lord, you give us the ears to hear and the mind to comprehend what is spoken, and most importantly, Lord, that our hearts would be open, that they'd be soft and pliable, that you might write your word on our heart and that it might find a place of rich soil where it would produce good fruit for your kingdom. And so, Lord, we pray that you teach us this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, back to Ephesians 3, and we're again looking at these first 13 verses. For you who are note takers, I would title our study this morning, The Mystery of the Church, because that's what Paul is going to talk about in our text this morning. Now, it's been a few weeks uh, since I taught for Pastor Damien, but you'll recall if you were here that I finished off chapter two, where Paul shared this wonderful truth that Jesus had made peace, not just between God and man, but also between people, specifically between Jews and Gentiles, where there had been division for millennia that God now had erased, and he took Jews and Gentiles and he made them one new person in Christ Jesus. And Paul in our text this morning is gonna build on that work, build on what Christ did to reconcile us first to God and then to one another by sharing that God, sharing with us a divine secret or what he calls a mystery and how Jews and Gentiles were brought together through this divine mystery to the glory of God. And that is that both Jews and Gentiles who trust in Christ are no longer a separated people, but one new people, one new man, as he said in chapter two, in this new entity, this brand new thing called the church. Now, you and I this morning in the 21st century might think, well, there's nothing really mysterious about the church. We understand the church, or at least we think we do, but to believers in the first century, and especially Jewish believers, the idea of the church where Jew and Gentile were together in one group on an equal footing, co-heirs in Christ to all of the promises that God made to the patriarchs, that was a mind-blowing truth. And it caused some problems in the early church, and unfortunately, it still does. For example, put yourself in the sandals of Peter or Mary or one of the early disciples. If you were a person that had been raised in Judaism, you would be the product of 1,500 years of rabid Jewish nationalism. What I mean by that is this, that God initially called the people to himself through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the idea was to create a nation at the center of the trade routes of the ancient world between east and west and north and south, Europe and Asia and Africa, to be a light to the Gentiles. And their distinctions in the way they dressed and the way they worshiped, even the way they plowed their fields was all meant to be a signpost to draw the Gentiles in to find out what kind of a God do these people serve. 
and then seeing the true and the living God would abandon their pagan and, and heathen ways and commit themselves to the Lord. But unfortunately, over the centuries, what happened is that beautiful idea that God had implanted to, to, to be in the hearts of his people became instead through rabbinical tradition and teaching, instead of to become a light, they saw it as a wall and a fence. And the Jewish teaching for about 1,500 years had been that God had chose the Jewish people for himself and the rest of the world was simply kindling fire or kindling logs for the fires of hell. And so if you were a Jew that came to faith in Christ, you would have to undo all of that wrong thinking that had been passed down generation after generation in Israel. Well, here's the point and really the theme of our study this morning as I read in Ephesians 5.25. In other words, this is what you want to go home with today. This is what you want to take home in your heart. And that is the fact, as we read in Ephesians 5, verse 25, Jesus loves his church. Now, you and I know that, but unfortunately today, we recognize that the church of Christ, and I don't mean the denomination of the church of Christ, but I mean the church of the living God by whatever title it, it, it has over its door, has a lot of problems in the world today. A month can hardly go by without some new report on social media or blasted across, you know, the Associated Press website or something like that with some new moral outrage that's been committed by a priest or a pastor, a denomination or a movement. And while you and I don't want to ignore those legitimate wrongs that have been done by members of the church or entire denominations and deal with those biblically, nor do we want to dismiss the value and the beauty of the bride of Christ as so many people are doing. Evidenced by the mass exodus from the church over the last 30 or 40 years by the younger generations. And you'll see all the time, not just in this church, but in churches around the world, young men and women who are literally born in the church, raised in the church, taught the, taught the Holy Scripture, served in the church, excited about the church, and then as soon as they're out of high school, and they can do what they want to do, they run away from the church and the, the accusation is, well, the church is full of issues and full of problems and full of hypocrites. As if Jesus didn't tell us that's the way it would be. I mean, we look at the parables of the mustard seed, the parable of the wheat and the tares, the parable of the leaven and the lump. Jesus told us that the church would in fact be infiltrated by false and pretend believers. So we ought not be surprised nor should we use that as an excuse to abandon the church because Paul reminds us here in chapter three and as we read in chapter five and as Jesus makes crystal clear, he is madly in love with his church, the bride of Christ, and so should we. And so we begin chapter three, verse one. Paul writes, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. Now in my New King James and maybe in your Bibles, you'll notice there's a little M dash after the word Gentiles. You just learned a new word, huh? <laughs> right, M dash, that's where you have two little like minus signs put together, makes a long line. I only learned this about a year ago, an M dash. That's exciting. What does that mean? Well, it's kind of a punctuation where you're going to kind of take a comma, a break in your thought and then pick it up later. In any event, this section of Paul's letter to me is comical because he begins with a prayer, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. And then he goes off on this divine rabbit trail for the next 12 verses. <laughs> he like completely ignores the prayer not to pick it up again until he gets to verse 14 through verse 21. Doesn't that sound like the way you and I pray? I don't know about you, but I have like ADHD prayer life. <laughs> Literally, like in the morning, every morning I begin to pray and I'm thankful, first of all, for my wife of 41 years. I'm like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I have been blessed, right? And then I begin to thank the Lord for my kids, Sean and, and his, his kids, you know, Denver and Bill, and then my daughter, Siobhan, and then I'll pray for Kelly. And then somewhere along the line, I go on these little rabbit trails. So I'm praying and it's like, thank you, Lord, for Kelly. And then I think, Kelly, Kelly, Patrick, that's his middle name. And now I'm thinking about my best friend in elementary and junior high school, Pat Gallagher. We, we shared our houses, you know, shared a, a fence between our backyards and we back, go back and forth, jump over and we spent all day, every day together. We ran together, we competed together. We were great friends all the way through high school. But now in my mind and my prayer life, I'm thinking, what ever happened to Pat Gallagher? 
Well, the last time I remember him, I think he was in Santa Paula. Now, I, I heard that he had married this wonderful, godly woman and that he was a neat Christian brother. He was growing in his faith in Christ. And he was, you know, I think he was doing accounting just like his dad. And I'm off on this crazy little rabbit trail where I started to pray for my family to thank God. And boom, <laughs> I haven't seen this guy in 30 years. So I'm not encouraging ADH prayer, but verse 1 reminds us that sometimes those little rabbit trails may in fact be inspired by the Holy Spirit. So what I've learned to do now is I keep a little you know, notebook or a piece of paper next to me when I'm praying and when Patrick, boom, ah, I just, I write that down and then follow up on it later. In other words, maybe the Lord wants me to check social media. Hey, whatever happened to Pat Gallagher? right? Check Facebook, check Instagram, check, you know, whatever. And do a little research, maybe whitepages.com. By the way, I'm really, I should have probably been a detective. I can find anyone who's interested in my daughter. In fact, she won't even tell me now. If there's a man on planet Earth that she's interested in, all she has to do, I look at her eyes and go, okay, there's someone. And then within 20 minutes, I know his name, his address, what he does for a living. Anyway, you go to whitepages.com, all sorts of fun information. But maybe what the Lord's doing in that little rabbit trail is to remind you to reach out and call that person you haven't thought of in 30 years. Maybe they need to hear about Jesus Christ and what he's done in your life. Maybe they're a believer, but they're just in a season of difficulty or doubt. And it's your opportunity to lift them and encourage them in their faith. And so those rabbit trails, though while I'm not encouraging them, can, as we see demonstrated here in verse one, be from the Lord and my encouragement, jot those things down, prayerfully consider, and then it may be the Lord using that rabbit trail to use you to reach out to that old friend for Christ. Notice then Paul moves on and he tells them that he is a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Now I'm sure most of you understand the context of this letter, but if you're new to the Bible, let me kind of fill you in. Paul wrote this letter during his first Roman imprisonment while waiting to stand before Caesar for trial. He had been arrested a few years prior to this in Jerusalem where he had been falsely accused by the Jewish people of bringing a Gentile into the Jewish courtyard of the temple compound. A riot ensued, and then Paul ended up being arrested, carried off by the Romans, and then spending a couple of years in a prison in Caesarea Philippi. And then he had appealed to Caesar, taken to Rome, and now he's waiting for trial. Now, here's the connection to the letter of, uh, to, to the Ephesians. He had been accused of bringing a Gentile in the courtyard. Guess what? The Gentile he was accused of bringing into the courtyard of the Jews in the temple of Jerusalem was none other than Tromephus, an Ephesian Gentile from the church that Paul's writing to. In other words, there in verse one where Paul writes, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, it carries weight, it's poignant to the Ephesian church because they understood that it was one of their members that Paul had taken to Jerusalem and then Paul falsely accused of bringing this Gentile brethren into the court that he had been arrested, spent the last few years in jail and now stood before Caesar not knowing if he'd live or die. That is the Ephesians, they knew and they appreciated the sacrifice that Paul had made on their behalf to bring the good news to Gentiles and specifically to the church at Ephesus. They understood there was a great cost borne by Paul to preach the gospel of Christ to the Gentiles. And so Paul begins with prayer and then boom, divine rabbit trail. We move on to the main point of our study this morning, that is the mystery of the church. Notice how Paul writes about it in verses two to six. He says, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for, notice, you, in other words, you Gentiles, how by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which you read, you may understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. And here's the mystery, verse six, that you Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Now, I know that this probably doesn't need to be said, but for those of you that are new to the scripture, where Paul writes there in verse three and verse four, the word mystery, 
He's not talking about like an Agatha Christie novel, which I would enjoy, right? Murder of the Orient Express or something like that. But that's not what he's talking about. No, what Paul communicates here when he uses the word mystery is that it was a truth that was previously hidden to the Old Testament saints that now by New Testament revelation through Jesus, through the apostles, and through the New Testament prophets has now been made known to the sons of men. Specifically, notice there in verse six, Paul tells us that the mystery of the church is that Gentiles are now made fellow heirs with believing Jews in the kingdom of God. That they are made members, notice in verse six, of the same body as believing Jews. And that they have been made partakers with believing Jews in all of God's promises made to the patriarchs. That is the mystery of Christ is this new living entity or institution that's called the church or oftentimes the body of Christ in which both Jew and Gentile will have an equal standing before God. Again, a radical concept in the first century to Jews and Gentiles. And Paul says it's a mystery because the Old Testament prophets, while they did speak prophetically that one day the Gentiles would believe in God, the idea that they would be put together into this one entity, not the nation of Israel, but a new entity called the church where both Jews and Gentiles would be made equal heirs of all of God's promises was never ever thought of in the Old Testament. In other words, there's hints of it through the prophets, but the fullness of that understanding doesn't come to pass until Jesus and his apostles and prophets through that New Testament revelation. Specifically, we read in the New Testament that the church was born on the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples and birthed a brand new group, this thing called the body of Christ or the church. Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, for, I, he says, for by one spirit you were baptized into one body. Do you hear that? By one spirit. So he's not talking about water baptism He's talking about a spiritual baptism of which water baptism is simply a picture of the inward spiritual reality that's already transpired through the Holy Spirit. He says, for by one spirit you are all baptized into one body. Listen, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, you have all been made to drink of one spirit. In other words, see that trust in Christ, male and female, slave and free, Black and white, Jew and Gentile, all made to partake of one body. We all become partakers, co-heirs of the same body called the church. And thus on the day of Pentecost began what we call the church age, or some people like to call the age of grace in which God is working through the Holy Spirit, ministering through the church and the evangelistic efforts of the church to win for himself a bride, the bride of Christ, the church, again, from every people, every tribe, every tongue, every nation on planet earth, and to make that church prepared for her husband. And the church age will come to a close, and I pray it's not in the far, too far distant future, When Jesus Christ calls his church home at the rapture of the church, brings her to heaven where she will be sequestered for seven years to parallel the seven days of the Jewish wedding festival and at the end of the seven years present his bride to his assembled guests. And then it's after the church age, after the church has been removed from the earth that the Lord turns his attention back to Israel that he might fulfill the promises that are yet unfulfilled, those unconditional promises to Abraham, Jacob, and David. And the Bible calls that seven-year period after the church is gone the time of Jacob's trouble. Notice it's not the time of the church's trouble. No, Jeremiah specifically calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. And in the Old Testament, wherever God refers to the nation of Israel as Jacob rather than by her name Israel, it's a picture of her disobedience. In other words, she's gone back to her old ways. And during the tribulation period, Israel, by and large, the Jewish people on planet Earth, have rejected their Messiah. So they're disobedient, so they're called Jacob. 
In the time of Jacob, Jacob's trouble, also called the tribulation period or the 70th week of Daniel, is that time ordained by God in part to bring the Jewish people to recognize Christ as their Messiah as predicted in Zechariah chapters 12, 13, and 14, as predicted by Daniel chapter 9, and so eloquently expounded by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. In fact, go read that Romans 9, 10, 11 at your leisure, and what you'll find is Paul's kind of wagging his spiritual finger at us Gentiles saying, now listen, <laughs> I know you've been grafted in. I know you're co-heirs. I know you're partakers. I know you're part of the same body. You're all on equal footing, but now don't get arrogant because God's not done with the Jewish people. He's going to win them. And as Paul writes in his Zechariah, Zechariah records, at the end of the tribulation, all Israel will come to know their Savior. In other words, all of those Jewish people still living at the end of the tribulation people will look on Christ and receive him as their King and Savior. And the point is that God's not finished with Israel. And while he's still working through the church today, he made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that are unconditional, that he will fulfill regardless of the faithlessness of the Jewish people promises he'll bring to pass after the church has been removed from planet earth well back to you and me the church you know when we first moved to arkansas in 1994 to plant a calvary chapel when people would find out that i was a pastor they'd always want to know well what are you uh i'm a christian and that was never satisfactory (laughs) because what they wanted to know is well what flavor are you (laughs) Are you a Baptist, you Pentecostal, Church of Christ? What are you? Because those are kind of the main denominational flavors. And to make things easy, I would just, I learned to just say, uh, I'm Bapticostal. <laughs> In other words, we have a high, you know, a high esteem of the word of God. We preach and teach the word of God chapter by chapter, verse by verse, Genesis to Revelation, like you might find in a good Bible-believing Baptist church. And yet we're also charismatic in the sense that we still believe in the gifts of the spirit for today. So they kind of take a step back and go, Bapticostal? Well, that's interesting. I kind of always believed that. I just didn't want to tell anybody. <laughs> and so you have a lot of people coming from different church backgrounds that were attracted to that. But then I also found that there were a number of people who, while they claimed it did not make any difference what flavor or brand of Christianity I followed, in reality, for many, many people in the South, it did. And I would say that's true throughout the world today. What I find is too many Christians today are more concerned about their unique church affiliation, their tribe, if you will, when they should be concerned about the greater unity of the body of Christ. And I think that's one of the reasons that the church in the United States has so much difficulty getting anything be done because too many of us are worried about our own, our own work, what God's doing uniquely from us, and we're not willing to recognize the unity that God is building in the church so that we might work together for the sake of the kingdom. I'll illustrate it this way. Back in Arkansas, again, we had the unique privilege where uh, Greg Laurie's right-hand pastor, John, I can't think of his last name at the moment, uh, reached out to us and said, hey, Greg would love to bring a harvest crusade to Northwest Arkansas. I was pretty like, what? I mean, yes, tomorrow. Like, let's do it. Razorback Stadium, we'll fill it up. And so we got in touch with the leading Southern Baptist pastor in our community, Ronnie Floyd, who was at one time the Southern Baptist uh, chairman, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and Ronnie threw his full weight and support behind the idea. And he personally wrote to over 300 Baptist-affiliated churches within our region, inviting pastors to come to the church to kind of, you know, meet and greet Greg Laurie, hear his heart, uh, find out what he's done throughout the world through the Harvest Crusades, so that we could get together as a body of Christ in Northwest Arkansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma to bring the gospel of Christ to our community. And so we, I mean, there was all of this effort, all of this media, again, personal handwritten notes from the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. We had seven pastors show up. Seven pastors show up, and I was one of them. I mean, it was so disheartening. It was, it was like, are you kidding me? I mean, what do you have to do to people, get people to come out? And the point is that too many people are, are, are just concerned with their little piece of the kingdom. They're not concerned with working together for the greater uh, cause of winning the loss to Christ. 
Now again, a bright exception was Pastor Ronnie Floyd, who, who on a regular basis then, and I think still does, challenge his congregation. And this is a direct quote. He would say, stop thinking like Baptists and start thinking like Christians. Well, I could get behind that and it's an amen. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Why is it just we need that attitude in all of the different buildings today where the church is meeting because we're all part of the same body that Paul reminds us, one spirit, one body, redeemed Jews and Gentiles of every Christian denomination and movement and tribe, all redeemed by Christ. And so Paul tells us the mystery that he preached, the gospel of Jesus Christ is God was winning for himself a bride made up of every people group on the planet, one body that he is returning for at the end of this age. Well, next Paul moves from the mystery to describe his ministry to communicate that mystery. Verse seven, Paul says, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, and haven't you, always, haven't you often felt, no, no, that's, that's me, right? No, Paul, you don't get that. I'm the least of all, but that's probably a good attitude for all of us to have. He said, the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers and the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. And so let's just kind of break down this section of scripture. Paul begins by describing himself as a minister of the gospel, a minister of the mystery of Christ. And in verse seven, where he calls himself a minister, depending on your background or upbringing, that word can kind of have a, you know, kind of an honorable ring to it or sound impressive. In fact, until very recently here in the United States, Throughout the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, Europe, to use the word minister as a title carried the same weight, the same honor, the same privilege as to say that you are an engineer or a doctor or have that kind of status. In other words, traditionally in our society, the word minister carried unique privilege and social standing. But interestingly enough, the word minister that Paul uses to describe his call, his duty to share the mystery of Christ simply means to be a servant. In fact, in the original Greek text, the word always is associated with someone who is owned by or under someone else. For example, it's the word used to describe a household servant, somebody that was anonymous. You didn't know their name, you didn't know who they were, you didn't know who, what they were, where they were from. Their job was simply to put food in front of the master, or their job was to plow the field, or their job was to do something, but they were just an anonymous servant of the master. And Paul, as he looked at himself and his calling, he said, that's my calling. But as low as you might think it is, Paul wanted us to understand it was in his mind the highest privilege that a man or a woman could have because he recognized that there's nothing in life more important than serving the Lord and bringing the life-changing power of the gospel and the mystery of Christ to men and women that they might be saved. And Paul reminds us that all of us have been called to be servants. In other words, it doesn't matter what your title is today. You might be, you might be the chiefest among chief surgeons at the hospital where you work. Uh, you might be the CEO of an international corporation. It doesn't matter what your title and occupation is because as Christians, we are all servants of the master. We belong to Jesus Christ who purchased us out of sin and death with his own blood. We have a king and we've all been given a task to do part of his great plan of redemption. And because we are all servants of king, there's no cause to boast in our title or occupation because we're all equal before Christ. And so whatever he's given us to do, recognize as Paul did, it's an honor, it's a privilege to be able to serve the king of kings and the Lord of lords to help advance his 
mystery, this mystery of the church, this saving power of the gospel to a lost and a dying world. Now, friends, if you're already doing that today, I just want to you know, give a moment of praise God, keep on, right? Don't get discouraged. You just keep on, keep on, do what God's called you to do. But if you sit here this morning, you're watching online, you recognize, well, I'm really not doing anything to serve the Lord. In fact, I'm not even sure what I'm supposed to do. My encouragement is just look around for what's not being done and do that. In other words, no one is ever going to stop you from mopping the floor. Oh, don't do that. That's my job. Get out of the way. Right? Got a toilet brush in your hand and a little, you know, toilet cleaner. No one's going to stop you. You just go do that, right? Making sure there's toilet paper in the stalls and paper towels in the bathroom, right? Cleaning the nursery. Nobody's going to fight you over that. If you don't know what to do, just do something. I see an example at Acts chapter 6 where the church was going through its first crisis. There's division between the Jewish believers uh, that, that, that were raised in Judaism and those who were raised in the, uh, the Greek culture because they dressed different, talked different. And so the, Greek, uh, the Greek-speaking Jews were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And the solution was to choose six men, godly men, full of the Holy Spirit, to make sure that everyone is treated equally. But those men, all they, think about it, all they were doing was really just meals on wheels, but they saw a need and they were willing to take care of it. But then two of those men, Stephen, later began to preach with such power in Jerusalem that it infuriated the unbelieving Jews and he became the first martyr of the church. But it was at his death that there was a man, soul of Tarsus, washing the coats who saw the testimony of his life that later helped bring Saul to faith in Christ. And there was Philip who, again, serving meals and wheels, who later became a great evangelist and brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to the entire area of Samaria and then was used to go down to the, to the desert place to meet a, an individual Ethiopian eunuch heading back from Jerusalem to share the gospel with him and take the gospel now to Africa. One man. <laughs> and so my encouragement, if you don't know what to do, just look for what needs to be done and just do it. God will bless you, and as you're faithful to do that, he will show you what he's called you to do. And so we're all called to be ministers, but Paul moves on. He says he was called to the ministry, or excuse me, he defines what he was called to do, and that is the ministry, look at verse eight, to preach among the Gentiles. Now, that's not to say that Paul didn't preach the gospel to Jews. He did. In every city, every village he went to, he would begin in the synagogue. And if there wasn't a synagogue, he'd start by the river where the Jews would traditionally meet to pray and then spread from there into the Gentile community. And Paul had been set apart from the very beginning when he first gave his life to Christ to preach to the Gentiles. Here's the word of the Lord Jesus to Ananias who was sent to pray for Paul after he had had that Damascus Road experience. Acts chapter 9, 15. Jesus says to Ananias, go for he, that is Paul, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Later in Acts chapter 13, we find Paul with the elders in the church at Antioch gathered for prayer. And the Holy Spirit speaks prophetically and says, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul, later called Paul, for the work to which I have called them. What work? Well, we read about beginning in Acts chapter 13 to the end of the book of Acts, the first of three missionary journeys that Paul took the gospel to the Gentiles. But as I look at it, at least in my perspective, I find a sense of humor in the way God works. Let me illustrate. God's selection of Saul, now called Paul, a hyper-conservative, legalistic, Gentile-hating Pharisee, right? You take that guy, and you're going to send him to the despised Gentiles, Now think about it, Paul had been raised in this strict form of Judaism that saw Gentiles in God's eyes as lower than dogs, (laughs) right? Dogs were considered unclean, things to be avoided, and they had Gentiles below that. That was Paul's perspective. But after he's converted to Christ, Jesus decides, I'm going to send Paul to the Gentiles to share the hidden mystery of God, which is to bring Jews and Gentiles together and make them co-heirs, members of the same body called the church. Now, here's my point. If you or I had been on the throne in heaven, (laughs) 
right? And bless the Lord that none of us has that opportunity. <laughs> we would mess it up in the first 30 seconds, right? The earth would stop spinning. People would be flying off in all directions. It would be a disaster. But the reality is if you or I had the responsibility for directing the work of the church, you and I would have sent Paul, the educated rabbi, who knew the Old Testament by memory, understood all of the Jewish traditions, the great, the great educated thinker of the Jews, we would have sent him to Jerusalem, right? That's where the Jews are. That's the religious center. Let's send Paul there. But instead, God sends Peter, an uneducated fisherman from despised backwater Gentile Galilee to go to the sophisticated religious Jews in Jerusalem, and he takes the educated rabbi and he sends him to the heathen. <laughs> it's like, what? And again, I look at that, and it's comical, but it reminds us that God knows best how to utilize each and every one of us for his work, and that his plans don't always make sense, nor do they meet our, with our expectations or what we thought he would do. And so my encouragement from Paul and Peter and the rest of the saints in scripture is to allow God to work in our lives the way he wants to. In other words, be open to him throwing your curveball to do something in your life or to call you to some ministry, you thought, oh, no, I am definitely called, I am not called to that, right? So for me, it would be called to be a chaplain on a submarine. No, <laughs> no, I don't want to, I, I, I have to like be on terra firma, have to be able to see the sun, to be in a, in a tube of metal for 120 days where you can't see anything. No, 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 I would go, I would be, I'd be a lunatic. But if God sent me, I'm sure, I, I'm sure it'd work out. So again, be, in, be open to God's plans because he may want to use you in ways that will blow your mind and you will find surprisingly brings great content. Well, next Paul talks about the message of the ministry. Look at verse eight. That is, Paul was called to preach salvation in Jesus Christ, but it wasn't limited to salvation. Notice it included the unsearchable riches of Christ. In other words, Paul communicated through his gospel not just what we are saved from, sin and death, but what we are saved for, which is to share the unsearchable riches of Christ with a lost and dying world, but also to be partakers of those unsearchable riches of Christ, which includes all the joy and contentment that we have currently on planet Earth, but also the eternity that's being prepared for us that is beyond our comprehension. Paul described that future, those unsearchable riches of Christ that are waiting for us this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where he's describing this experience where he didn't know if it was a vision or if it actually happened like in his physical body where he'd been taken up into heaven. And Paul says this, and I know such a man, he's writing third person trying to maintain a, a, you know, a little humility here, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he, that is that man, was caught up into paradise and, listen, heard inexpressible words which is not lawful for a man to utter. In other words, Paul saw, heard, experienced things in paradise, heaven. He said human language isn't fit to begin to try to describe to you what God is preparing for his bride. Or we might think about John who was given what in many senses, seems like an impossible task in the Revelation to describe eternity to us. Oh, go read Revelation chapters 21 and 22, and you find that as John begins to describe it, not only is, is this creation beyond our imagination, it, it would appear that there's a new law of physics even in which the material and the spiritual realms are connected and that there are colors and sounds and taste and things that are so far beyond what we can experience in these bodies that John's left at the end of it, and I tell you, and I quote, he says, now I, John, I saw and I heard these things. And when I saw and I heard, I fell down to worship. <laughs> I mean, it's like, wow, it's just, be, wow, it's just like, Okay, I've been told to tell you what it's like, but all I can kind of give you is like, like here's where it, wow, colors and, now think about the, the, the new Jerusalem that God describes in Revelation 21 and 22, right? All these gorgeous gemstones. And there's no sun, there's no need for light because Christ will be the light that lights eternity. Seated at the center of that kingdom. Now think about it, 
the light of the world shining through the walls of that new city that are made of gemstones. You could look in any direction throughout the universe and it'd just be a rainbow, boom, color. Now think about this, you and I can only see a small segment of visible light, right? Our eyes can only register certain light. There's whole, whole parts of light we know physics, we can't see ultraviolet and, and all that. What if in eternity with new eyes we can see more than we can see now? How many different shades of blue are there? Like seven billion, right? Taste, (laughs) right? For those of you who are foodies, right? Oh, heaven. (laughs) Mm. Or the, the, the smell, right? The beauty. I mean, it is so far beyond us, we can't comprehend it. And what Paul wants us to know is that God is prepared for those who have trusted him, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. They're part of this new thing called the church. There are unsearchable riches, both now and in eternity. Let me describe it this way. I think the best gifts are the ones you don't expect. For example, perhaps one of my favorite gifts I've ever received uh, was a batik that I purchased when I was in Uganda doing mission work. Now, if you don't know what a batik is, it's an Indonesian art form where they take a piece of cloth and then they use wax to block out the parts of the cloth they don't want to dye. So they do kind of a reverse image. So they put wax on it, then they dye the cloth, they take it out, the dye dries, then they use hot water, melt the wax, and then lay more wax on to create different images and dye it again. And the process goes on. So you get these layered pictures, right? Well, I bought this beautiful batik when I was in Uganda, but I didn't know what to do with it. I loved it. It was a picture of a village scene, and you're going to see it in just a minute. Um, But one birthday, one year I came back, uh, or came home, and there was this ginormous wrapped gift, and Cindy and Sean and Siobhan and Kelly are all beaming with this, like, you know, devious looks, like, okay, what are you up to? And I'm like, what is this? So I go to open it, and they had framed it, had it framed for me, and this doesn't do it justice. You got to see it by living room. So come on over, have coffee, we'll show it to you. But the point is, I would have never thought about, I should have this thing stretched and matted and framed, Right? And if I did think of it, I would have never spent that kind of money on myself. But I was so blessed. That's a teeny tiny comparison to communicate how great and amazing and beyond our comprehension are the riches that Christ has for us waiting in eternity, beyond our expectations and imagination. Well, next Paul moves into the mystery of the ministry, verse 10, that is the purpose for which he had been called. Notice he says there, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Now you've got to understand this word manifold because it opens up what Paul is trying to communicate. And the Greek language has, is kind of a picture language. There's so much more than our English can capture. The word manifold actually refers to like a, a, an embroidery. So gals, you know what I'm talking about. You take all these different colors of, of thread and you embroider, right? And you create pictures, right? That's the manifold beauty that Paul's describing. Or it's also used for you gardeners of creating a garden where you're using rock and you're using flowers and you're using hedge and you're creating just this beautiful tapestry of colors and textures and all of that. In other words, what Paul is communicating is that God is weaving together the lives of different people. Different colors, different cultures, different languages, different dress, different song, all into an inspiring work of art that testifies of the glory of God in his church. Now, if you're here Friday night, you got kind of a glimpse of that because we got to hear the gospel not only in English that we're familiar with, but in seven different languages to remind us of the manifold beauty of the church throughout the world that when we're celebrating Christmas, there's people in caves in Afghanistan hiding from the Taliban celebrating Christmas. There's people in Asia and Africa and Europe and all the world celebrating in different languages the same scriptures that we trust in and believe in, but in a different language, in a different dress, in a different culture, in a different, I mean, and so that's a picture of what God's doing. In other words, the church as God has designed it and is now working to make it as a thing of unsurpassing beauty. Something you and I as humans don't always see, but Paul tells us there that the angels, principalities and powers, are in awe of. In other words, Paul is telling us that when the angels look at the church, 
and the wonderful work of unity and love that God is weaving together, they can testify or they have to testify that God's wisdom is great and unsearchable as they marvel as how God is weaving together ruined sinners like you and me into something of eternal beauty. Back to my point, Ephesians 5.25. The church is beautiful. Jesus loves his church. He's longing for the day when he gets to call his bride to heaven to be with him for all of eternity. But if you've been around the church for any length of time like I have, you know it's got blemishes. Oh, you probably didn't notice them when you first got saved. You were just happy that somebody would allow you to be a part of their group, right? Got rejected by all the fraternities or sororities on campus. Uh, you know, the local Elks Club didn't want anything to do with you. You tried to join the army. They rejected you, right? Everybody rejected you. Your family doesn't want you. And then you describe, defi- uh, get saved and you find there's a body of people on planet Earth, a group that wants me, <laughs> But after a while, that newness of the church wears off, and at some point in our Christian walk, we stop seeing the beauty of Jesus' bride. And now all we can see are the blemishes, friction between people, the failure of the saints, the lack of Christ-likeness we sometimes exhibit one to another. And the result is that many times believers today have simply stopped participating in the church. Like, you know, I just don't need that. Too much trouble. Uh, It takes too much work. And that's a great tragedy because while we're focused on the blemishes and the problems in the church, which are real, Paul reminds us here in verse 10 that the angels of heaven, the Lord himself, see the bride of Christ as beautiful and Jesus longs for her to be with him in heaven. So my exhortation to myself this morning and to you all, don't focus on the blemish. And I'll illustrate this way. Whenever you read about in history, you know, the top 10 most beautiful women or whatever, uh, the top 100, uh, Marilyn Monroe is almost always mentioned in those lists. And yet, perhaps the most dominant feature on her body was a, a mole on her face. Not something that normally people would be attracted to. It's considered a blemish. And yet, Marilyn Monroe is still considered one of the most beautiful women who ever lived in spite of the mole because people focused on the beauty of her face and not the blemish. Kind of funny, actually, that later some women started to paint little moles on their face, right? I ah, better put a blemish there, just like Marilyn, right? But the point is that people began to focus the, their attention on her beauty and ignore the mole. Well, I think Christians today, including myself, spend way too much time focused on the moles and the blemishes of the church and miss the beauty of the work that God's doing, transforming sinners into saints, And the reminder again is that Jesus loves his church. And the question I ask of you this morning and of myself is, do we love the church the way Jesus loves the church? And I would suggest that true love is manifest by our attitude and our actions. In other words, it's more than just words spoken and promises made. It's demonstrated in how we actually live out our life in relationship to the church. So let me illustrate this way. Think of the person you love most on planet Earth or the people you love most. So it's your spouse and and your children or some, you know, think about that. The person you love most, how is it that you demonstrate your love towards them? And I would suggest that number one, you probably, like I do, prioritize your time so you can spend time with the person you love, right? In other words, you're, you're looking at your schedule like, I want to figure out how I can spend the maximum amount of time with the person I love, right? So you're gonna navigate and negotiate and prioritize your work and your hobbies and and the duties in life so that you can spend as much time as possible with the person you love. You're gonna invest yourself in them, your time, talent, treasure, to help that person to grow to their God-given potential. You're gonna make sacrifices on their behalf and intentionally put their needs ahead of yours because you love them. And of course, you're gonna commit yourself to that person both in good times and bad. Why? Because that's what love does. And that's what Jesus did. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did he manifest his love? By giving himself for her. And so Paul reminds each of us that we're called to take our place in the service of the church as manifested by our love for the bride of Christ. First in our local church here at Calvary Modesto, 
but then in the universal churches, we work together to advance the kingdom of God. All right, one more verse, and I'll let you go get lunch. And I'm not supposed to talk about lunch, because then you'll be hungry, and you won't think about what I'm saying. But, you know, Christmas Day, <laughs> my son, he got homemade tamales, not homemade, tamales made from this incredible barbecue place where they do this slow roasted brisket with the best hand rub I've ever had, stuffed tamales for that. Are you serious? Like, just pile up the plate, brother. It's like, they don't ship them, unfortunately. But anyway, verse 13. Okay, we're not thinking about food anymore. We're moving on. Verse 13, the mandate, therefore I ask you not to lose heart of my tribulations for you, again, for you, Ephesians, which is for your glory. In other words, Paul closes his thoughts now by exhorting his friends at Ephesus, don't be discouraged, don't be fearful of my imprisonment. Rather, Paul wanted them to look at his imprisonment, imprisonment with the big picture, from the picture from heaven, And that is to recognize there is more good coming out of Paul's imprisonment than what they might have considered to be a bad turn in his life. And that was because Paul had been put in jail. Why? Because he had faithfully preached the mystery of Christ to the Gentiles from Cyprus to Rome. That was his mandate given to him by Christ. And while some might consider it unfortunate that he was now in jail, nonetheless to Paul it was worth it because many, many Gentiles had been won to Christ by his preaching. Paul knew if he had not preached the gospel, he would not be in jail. But then neither would Gentiles from Cyprus all the way to Rome have heard the gospel and saved. And furthermore, as Paul wrote to his friends at the church in Philippi, he said, even the personal bodyguard of Caesar himself have heard the gospel and given their lives to Christ because Paul was in prison in Rome. And so Paul communicates this suffering is worthwhile because through it, he was more than able to fulfill the mandate that had been given to him Christ, that is to preach the mystery of the church to Jew and Gentile alike. And so in closing, the mystery of the church. Friends, the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be the greatest social group on planet earth. In other words, greater than any fraternity, any sorority, any private golf club, anything you could belong to, anywhere in the world, doesn't matter how exclusive it is, there is nothing that is supposed to be greater or more beautiful or more attractive than the church. A place where people of all nationalities, all cultures, all languages, all dress find a common bond of love through Jesus Christ. A place where everyone is equal. A place where everyone is loved. A place where everyone is needed. That's the way it's designed. And to the extent that you and I want it to be so is the extent to which we make it. In other words, it's our choice. How am I going to live out my love for the bride of Christ? Am I going to choose to live in love as Christ does? Or am I going to continue to be self-centered? And perhaps I'm preaching to myself and myself alone today, but it's a reminder that Jesus loves the church, and so should I. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, this morning we thank you for this wonderful encouragement from our dear brother, the Apostle Paul. And Lord, again, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we love the body of Christ. But Lord... I know, at least in my heart, sometimes it's easier to see the blemishes and the failures than to see the beauty that you see. Lord, would you remind us this morning that you have called each of us to be a minister, that you've given each of us a ministry, and that those gifts have been given to us to bless your people, the bride of Christ, both locally and universally. And Lord, to reach to a world that so desperately needs to become part of this beautiful work that you're doing in these last days. Lord, would you give us your attitude? Would you give us your heart for your people and for your church? Lord, that we might take our place to work together, led by your spirit, directed by you, Jesus, to accomplish your purposes in these last days. And Lord, until you call us home, May we be found faithful doing what you've called us to do. And we commit all of this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Paul Lester. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Paul's teaching ministry by visiting ccmodesto.com.